And then we looked at Acts chapter 2, 42-47. The response to this good news, the church was birthed. And that church was probably in an extremely messy place. But there was something powerful that happened. They became this community of people. They were enduring with other perseverers. They were locking arms with brothers and sisters in Christ who were trying to figure out what does it mean to be found in Christ? What does it mean to be living in this corrupt world? And how do we do this together? This morning, we are going to be talking about what it means to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, share His name boldly. But we're going to, I'm going to throw in another very important piece. It's not just going to be about evangelism, although extremely critical. We're going to be talking about prayer as well. The critical discipline of prayer. So follow along with me as we read chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And they were speaking to the people, and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, who were all of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you, did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that these, they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man, man who had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded the, but they had commanded them to, to leave the, the council. Excuse me, let me read that again. But when they had commanded them to leave the, leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place and now Lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your of your holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. This is the Word of the Lord. That right there is a sermon enough. If you you just listen to that and you, you go, I I believe that's my God. And I believe that He still is capable to work in that way and even more powerful ways today. If, if I believe that's my God, but why is it that we often lack that kind of fervency? Why, why do we lack that kind of heart to pray? Why, why do we lack a, a certain zeal to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Why is it? This past week we had uh, our first round of 2 Corinthians Bible study with all the men. And it was a great time of just diving into Scripture together. I walked away fed. It was kind of one of those moments, not only was I fed and satisfied, but there was like this, man, I almost gorged on Scripture where I'm uncomfortable and there's this bubbling over. And as we were talking towards the end of this section of Scripture, there's a, a section talking about prayer. And I, as I was thinking through it and the guys were talking about it, there was something in my heart just going, why is it that we don't pray? Why, why is it when the church is called together to pray, we, we don't really pray with this kind of fervency? Why is it that we don't uh, when, when we pray at our meal times or with our children or with our friends or just alone with God, why is it that we don't have a certain zealousness for prayer, believing fully in prayer? Why is it that we don't desire to say, hey, I, I've got this prayer request and I want to see God move in this way. Why don't we just gather people together and say, let's pray about this. This is our God. Let's pray about this. Scripture says this. Let's pray together. Why? In my heart, I began to question 
is the reality that we are really, in some way, practical atheists. Uh, yeah, I, I know that I'm supposed to pray. I, I know God's powerful. But the reality is I, I don't believe that God will move. Therefore, I'm not going to pray. I've never experienced it, so I won't pray. Why? Are, are we really, as Christians, practical atheists when it comes to what we truly believe and practice? So this morning, we're going to continue on of looking what does it mean to be together as a church under the leadership of the joyful partnership between elders and the, the flock who are a devoted family rooted deeply in the gospel who are enduring together with other perseverers. And today we're going to be looking at what does it mean to have a bold witness that is deeply rooted in prayer all the while growing deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper together in Christ. All because of what Jesus did. So, that's what our plan is this morning, to look more deeply at to how do we increase our courageous, bold witness for the gospel that is being birthed out of our, our prayer life. So the apostles, Peter and John, had just been threatened. They'd been commanded to, to shut their mouths. The religious powers of the day saw something absolutely amazing. A 40-year-old man who was crippled for his entire life has now been healed. He's, he's doing jumping jacks. He's doing cartwheels. And everybody knows him because he was a beggar constantly asking. And they've seen him in the gates. And now this 40-year-old man who has never been able to walk is praising God. And the people are amazed by what God has done in and through this man. And so the religious leaders are saying, no, no more talking about this Jesus. Do not speak in His name anymore. They commanded by, were commanded by human authorities to dis disobey their final authority, the risen and reigning Savior. They responded in a respectful but yet very forthright manner. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot help but speak of it. Do, do you kind of hear what's happening? You tell me one thing, but I cannot help. This has happened to me. This has happened to us. I cannot help but speak of this, of what I've seen and what I've, what I've heard. Lord, work in me. In other words, they chose civil disobedience in place of disobedience to their king. I cannot help but speak of it. And this is a wonderful account of a, a faith-filled boldness in these leaders of the early church. One that I think that we should be able to follow after. These leaders of God refused to cower in the intense pressure of those who were gathered, gathered around them. They refused to cower. It was intense. 
The reality is we live also in a culture that is extremely intense. We are being pushed in on all sides to be culturally relevant, to be, you know, just, just go along with where culture is going. Don't, don't talk about this, Jesus. Your personal beliefs are your personal beliefs. But if it's true that I cannot help but to speak of what I have seen and what I've heard, can you imagine what might happen in our world? if the people of God truly believed the power of God to change the hearts? What if we choose to obey God rather than man? It's important to notice, and I just want to clear the air here, it's important to notice that this was not an act of ignorance or arrogance. Often in, in conservative circles, we're, we're kind of known as these arrogant kind of jerks you know we're, we're going to tell you about jesus and you're going to hell you know i've seen things on facebook and across the internet about these campus preachers who just stand on these campuses and just damn this person to hell damn that person to hell. i'm going oh no there's a certain arrogance that comes in there peter and john did not make this this statement out of a macho brashness or from a, a haughty level of self-sufficiency they weren't big jerks. Rather, as the text is going to reveal, they were speaking from a standpoint of humble dependence on the Lord of creation and of providence. They were humbly reliant on God. Perhaps there is no more of an obvious statement of our dependence upon the Lord than when we actually pray. As John Bunyan once wrote, we can do more than pray. But we can never do more until we pray. We can do more than pray, absolutely. But we can never do more until we pray. There's a deep connection between our actions and our reliance upon God in prayer. And this passage is a wonderful lesson, lesson on the importance of the discipline of prayer. It is an essential discipline for us as a church. One that we, we need to really grapple with. To really wrap our arms around. It is the essential discipline of the local church that seeks to see the glory of God being made known through the Gospel, thereby bringing great gladness to all the nations, to all the neighborhoods, to all the cities, to all the world. It is an essential discipline if we will ever truly attempt to do great things for God that God has told us to already expect. And importantly, we must understand that this is the very context of prayer. Prayer stands tallest when we pray according to what God has explicitly revealed. When we, when we pray, according, God, this is your will. Because how do I know that this is your will? Not just because it feels good in my spirit or because it feels good for my family, but it, I am praying because it is revealed. This is your revealed word to us. Therefore, I am going to pray what your revealed word already says about our situation and our world. In this particular context, these believers prayed for boldness to actually do what they had just recently boldly claimed they would do 
to speak the name of Jesus. They were praying for success in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go! And so they were asking for a complete type of boldness to actually fulfill what they said they were going to do that was rooted in the Great Commission. They were praying for success. This passage should serve for us as a motivating call to believe and therefore to pray for the exalting of God's name in our world, in our families, in our workplaces, in such a way that it is towards the extension of His kingdom through the life-transforming power of the Gospel. So as we turn back towards the text, I trust that the Lord will use this passage. I trust that He's going to use this passage to drive us to our knees. And if he does, this passage does not drive us to our knees, it's not because of the inadequacy of Scripture. If this does not drive us to our knees, there is an inadequacy of faith in our hearts. So meditate on this. Because our goal, our hope, is that more and more knees will bow to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Is that not our hope? So as we look at this text, upon this re- their release, Peter and John, what did they do? They didn't go right back out to the streets, did they? They immediately, according to verse 23, they, they went to their own. They went back to their people. Connection, if the connection between last week and this does not strike you, something is missing, you're not listening very well, when they were under pressure, they reconnected with those who needed to know their persecution and who would shoulder the burden with them. They went back to their brothers and sisters in Christ and said, this is what they have said. I, I, I need you to endure with me, to persevere with me. I need you, each and every one of you, in this upper room, wherever they were meeting at that time. I need you. So upon their return, they went back. This should resonate with us. They did not do it alone. At all. They persevered as a church. They were not persevering alone, but instead, they were on this pilgrimage together with other pilgrims who are committed to the Gospel. Not casually, but intentionally purposefully, covenantally committed to one another's good. And that included prayer. And this is just one glory of the biblical biblical local church. It is a place filled with hopeful truth. It is a place where lives can be changed for the glory of God by the power of the Gospel. There is no other place on earth where hope should be more powerful than the local church. That's why the local church is critical to your life, to your growth in Christ. That's why you need the local church to be committed in intentional and special ways. Much like a husband is committed to his wife, like Christ is committed to his church, we say to one another, Brent, I am with you. Are you with me? Paul, I am with you. Amen. We're locking arms. 
So what was the response? Not only were they committed, they didn't just get together and have a, a cup of tea. They didn't have ham buns and talk about, oh wow, that's, that really, really stinks. What did they do? The response of the report that was brought to the apostles is recorded in verses 24 to 30. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything is, who is in, that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered against Gathered, to, there, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. <laughs> That's a response. And in this response, we can see at least three things. First of all, they were united in praise. United in praise. Their, their immediate response to this report of persecution was not panic. I'm sorry, the first one is prayer. It was not one of panic. It was not a, oh, no, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, some of us, when we get squeezed, we all of a sudden go into panic mode, right? And you know who you are, okay? All of you should be raising your hands because it's really true. Some of us just display it differently. We hide it. Others of us, we break out into sweats and we freak out. We get on the phone. We start texting everybody that we know. But their immediate response to the report of persecution was not panic, it was prayer. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. Wouldn't it be different if in our, in our pain, in our situations in life, no matter what it is, where we feel ourselves pushed in, instead of just getting on the phone or making phone calls or calling this person and, and freaking out, we say, hey, you know what, here's the situation, I need this to pray. I need us to pray. Because what they did is that they remembered the one on whom they had depended. It was no longer about them and their situation. What did they do? They immediately historically backwards and just said, that's the one on whom I depended. That's the one on whom I trust. I don't trust in the, the world and all these circumstances and things happening. I trust on them. But at the same time, they did not take the news of persecution with kind of a cavalier carelessness. Like, whoa, whoa, whatever happens, we're going to trust in Jesus. But they did not crumble under pressure either. John Calvin said, we must not carelessly laugh in times of danger, but the fear of danger ought to drive us to crave help at the hands of God. <laughs> The fear of danger ought to drive us to crave help at the hands of God. 
Their response to the news of persecution was exactly what it should have been. They applied their theology, their understanding of God and who He is. They applied it immediately to just practical daily prayer. The second thing that we see is that they were united in praise. Instead of jumping immediately into their requests, what did they do? These, These believers prayed, Oh, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. They moved immediately into praise. They began with praise. And this is always to be the place of our, the starting place of our prayers. Because what does it do? It resets our mind. It takes our eyes off of what is happening right here and says, Sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. In other words, you name it, you got it. Sovereign Lord. There's only one way to properly pray. Recognizing that we are His people and He is our God. It's about recognizing His absolute sovereignty in all things. Our theology matters. Theology should drive our understanding of prayer because biblical theology should drive us to our knees. And before these believers brought their request to God, they deliberately remembered, oh, sovereign Lord, they remembered He had a plan and He had the power to accomplish that plan. He is a sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. That's more than you. Okay? There's, you have never created something on your own. And if you're a parent, you didn't make that kid. They were knit together even in your womb. So as you pray for your child, don't pray out of your own strength. God, give me strength. Let me pull my pants and be the tough guy here. No, pray, oh sovereign Lord. You even created my kid. You are sovereign over this situation. That's how we should be praising God. Recognizing who He is. Third, these people are also united in their perspective. The prayers of these believers were fueled by their bibliology. In other words, their, their understanding of Scripture. Their study of Scripture. So you got theology is the study of the understanding of God. Bibliology is our understanding of this book. And they were united in their perspective. They shared the conviction that Scripture is God's Word. It's actually His Word. Charles Erdman observes this. They were commissioned to witness for Christ. And now the supreme rulers of the nation had positively forbidden all testimony in His name their minds turned for comfort to Scriptures. Where did they turn immediately? They had a shared perspective on the Word of God. God's words guided, God's words guided their words. His revelation was the source of their request. His inspiration was the basis for their expectation. His prophecy was the foundation of their petitions. His prophecy... What he said was their foundation for their petitions. In verses 25 to 30, 
They were quoting Psalm 2, the first two verses. And these believers began their appeal to God. They appealed to God grounded on the firm foundation of God's holy word. This must always be and always be the, truly the foundation for our prayer, deeply rooted in Scripture. And if that is to be true, should you not in all kinds of creative ways be found in God's Word? Whether it be in our corporate worship together as brothers and sisters sitting underneath the Word of God being expounded to you, should you not be finding men and women in separate contexts and together uh, like missional communities or men's Bible studies or women's Bible studies be together getting deeper into God's Word? Should you not personally in a daily kind of way be just devouring these words and you just can't get enough? Because what will that do? Our understanding of Scripture is there going to impact our understanding of God, which is therefore going to impact our understanding of prayer and drive us to our knees, which will then, if we get to verse 3 sometime this morning, it will shake the place. It should be a comfort for us to see that the church here ran to the Word of God for comfort comfort and prayer. It was the Word that shaped their theology. And it was the Word that sustained their prayer life. I, I want you to see that they shared as a body uh, different perspectives about the Word of God. And this threefold perspective shaped their theology and shaped their prayer life. Here's the first one. Next one there. What shaped their corporate prayer? A shared perspective regarding the inspiration of Scripture. They shared a conviction about God's Word. Their conviction was that these were the very words of God. They believed that it was God who by the mouth of your servant David had said these things by the Holy Spirit. These were God's words. In the New Testament, the New Testament universally teaches the authority of Scripture as the very Word of God. The very Word of God. And because these church leaders shared their belief in God's Word, they could pray with boldness. If God, if you said it, and these are your words without error, and they will not mislead me, they will not fail me, we can pray with a certain kind of boldness. Right? Right? We should be able to pray in a, with a certain kind of boldness. If the Bible is not inspired, it, it is simply a collection of wise sayings with the same authority as Charles Dickens. And if that is the case, if that truly is the case, that it is not inspired, and it's just like Charles Dickens' books, we have no basis in prayer. No basis. And in the age of uncertainty, we must embrace apostolic certainty. We must embrace it completely. Our prayers must not be based on the whims of the human heart, but rather rooted in the very words of God. Theology and bibliology are necessary for a robust life filled with prayer. And these people knew from God's Word that they were up against a 
huge problem. Huge problem. Psalm 2, enlighten them about this. Why do the nations rage? Why, why are the kings coming against them? All these things are going to be happening. Psalm 2, let them know, but it also led them to pray. We, we can kind of even summarize this verse with this pr- paraphrase. Lord, here we are on our knees before You. We recognize You as at the absolute sovereign of our lives. We believe Your Word. We are not surprised by the hostility of these rulers. We are confident that through, though this problem is universal, you are, we are more confident that You are eternal. And so God, we pray this. There's a deep confidence. Their persecution was no surprise to God. And they understood that. They understood that God knew that their persecution was not a surprise. They were certain that their troubles were part and parcel of God's sovereign plan and purpose. What was going on is part and parcel of God's purpose and plan for their lives. And importantly, although they, they only quoted the first two verses of this psalm, they believed it in its entirety. Psalm 2 is what's called a messianic psalm. It talks about the victory of the coming Messiah. It shows that even though men and women tried to break free from God's authority, you know people, maybe it's even you this morning, you are constantly trying to break free from God's authority over your life. Maybe you see people in your life who don't know Jesus, who don't cling to Him, and you just watch them. They are trying to break free, and they are developing their own kingdoms, their own fiefdoms. But ultimately, even though they were trying to break free, they ultimately never can. They try to resist Christ's lordship, but He is Lord nonetheless. And from this, from this, their response to the persecution, these believers believed the psalm. They believed that Jesus would conquer His enemies. And they prayed that He would do so through the Gospel and use them in this conquest. And then they went forth with the Gospel, believing that Jesus would conquer we need a biblical, a biblical perspective if we really are going to pray. Our bibliology is determinative of our prayer life. We must learn to pray God's Word. So in kind of sum about that, we must say that the Bible reveals about how big the problem really is. And how infinite our God really is. There is no opposition that is insurmountable to our sovereign God. Did you hear that? There is no opposition that is insurmountable for our sovereign God. Every moment in the history of mankind that has opposed the Gospel has ultimately become a historical footnote. Which is good news. Even all this stuff that is going on in Syria with ISIS. You know what? Someday, we don't know when, someday that is going to become a historical footnote because either tremendous amount of revival is going to happen, the good news is going to penetrate, or Jesus is going to come back. And every knee will bow. 
and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Second perspective. Their shared perspective, they shared a perspective regarding the application of Scripture. The church understood how David's ancient words in Psalm 2 applied to Christ and to the church's own situation. They were all quite literally on the same page. Psalm 2 was their psalm. They were of the same Christocentric mind when it came to applying Christ. Note how contemporary, how relevant, how personal their application of this ancient psalm was. They understood that the psalm was not written specifically to them, but they believed that God's Word was written for them. The same is true as we study, the men study 2 Corinthians. That book was not written directly to us, but that book is directly for us. In the same way. So they understood the reference to God's anointed as speaking to Christ. They understood that the raging kings and rulers as leaders of their own time, as Herod, Pontius Pilate, etc., etc., etc. In short, they saw the past, the recent past, as the hand of God. And they made the connection with this ancient psalm to the cross, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. Why would they not then see their present situation as also the Christ-centered providence of God? This is for us. This psalm speaks to us in our situation. So the Word of God was not merely a textbook. It wasn't merely a theoretical document to them. They viewed their contemporary circumstances in light of ancient prophecy. They shared the conviction that the Christ-centered New Covenant days were merely an extension of the Christ-centered Old Covenant days. They were an extension. They, they deeply connected. There wasn't a boom. Cut them apart. This book is only for historical study. This book is for you. No, there was a deep connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. And you could not divide them. We need that same kind of perspective. Our challenge is to trust God when things don't make sense. Even when they seem absolutely hopeless. And that's why the Bible gives us perspective and power in prayer. When we read a Psalm 2, we should go, yeah, I resonate with that because the nations today are raging. Are they not? They're raging. But you know what? Oh, sovereign Lord, creator of the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and all that's in them. You're still sovereign over this situation. The cross of Christ also puts our problem into perspective, thereby giving us perspective when we pray. It reminds us of our, our union with Christ. Christ-centered prayer gives us hope, and it gives us confidence. It keeps us from making it all about ourselves. It encourages us in the sovereignty and the enormity of God. And all this helps us to keep distance from disillusionment, from bitterness and hopelessness. The third perspective, last one. They had a shared perspective regarding the spreading of the gospel. We're finally getting there. 
rather than retreating at the first sign of trouble, these believers prayed for boldness. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all Not some. All boldness. Not 50%. All boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After being emboldened by Scripture, they made their request known. And it is incredible to know what they did not pray for. Did you notice? They did not pray for an easy time. They did not pray for a release from persecution not found in there at all. They didn't pray for a, a new government. God, would you put in, get these guys out of the, our religious circle or would you put new, get the Romans out? Maybe we can have a Christian nation, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's what we want. No, they didn't pray for that at all. Instead, their request was with the reference to the glory of God and the fame of His Son. They prayed for gospel growth right where they were planted. That's what their desire was. J.A. Alexander commented on this and he said, the boldness of the servants was to be secured by the displaying of the power of their master. Their demand was not now for miracles of vengeance, which I think some of us would love to do. Zap them, God. Power of vengeance uh, for miracles of vengeance or destruction, such as fire from heaven, you know, consume them, God, but for miracles of mercy. They were united in their request for the glory of God by the spread of his gospel. <laughs> Peter and John defied the Sanhedrin in verse 20, but all the same and all the more. They prayed for courage indeed to live up to their brave words. Give me all the courage. All. Not some courage. Just give me all this courage. They desired to see success for the Great Commission. So here's my question for you, and I want you to be honest. Do you share that prayer? Do you share that prayer? Is it your burden to pray success of the gospel? Really? I, I want you to search your heart. Because I've had to as I'm writing this and rewriting it this week. Is really the burden of my heart to pray for the success of the gospel so that ultimately God is glorified in all the nations? Do we pray fervently for our missionaries in northern or kind of western Africa ministering Islamic strongholds? Are we really praying, God, break down. Strengthen your servants. Give them all boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ. Do we pray for churches seeking to be faithful with the Gospel in China, in India, in Indonesia, in Mexico, Brazil, do we pray expectantly for gospel conquest in our own families? Make the circle a little smaller. 
Do you pray for the gospel conquest in our own families, in our backyards, on our own streets, in our workplaces, in our schools? Do you? Do we? The prayer for, of the believers was for boldness. A, a term which speaks of the ability to speak freely. They had already displayed this boldness and by the grace of God, continued to do so for long after these events. In short, this church prayed for the ability to carry out their stated desire and commitment. And their request was made with simple reference to the glory of God and the fame of His Son. They prayed simply for gospel growth. And this was what was behind their prayer to God. To be stretching out His hand to heal so that signs and wonders may be done through the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. They had previously just seen God use the miraculous. The miraculous to create an atmosphere of fruitful hearing for the Gospel. And so they prayed for it again. God, would you move in this way again? We desire for your glory and your fame to be seen throughout the world. God, can we see it again today? We know you have worked this way. We know you can still work this way. Will you work this way here? Is this not what we should desire? What we should desire for the church at large and I trust for our local church as well? Should our desire not be such that we desire that many people come to Christ on a daily basis. At least a weekly basis. My gosh, at least a monthly basis. So that we, we're in this place where, guys, I don't know what to do. We, we're breaking fire code. 97 are only allowed to be in here. And we're at 236. It's time to move out the walls. Because many are coming to Christ. You know what? Instead of building a bigger building. Maybe we need to start another church. Who's going to go? Who's going to go and proclaim boldly the name of Jesus Christ? Who? I'll go. James will go. Who's going to go? We need to pray for the power of God to be displayed in the earth-shaking world-reforming, life-transforming power of the Gospel. And the church understood that God had a sovereign purpose and submitted to His scriptural revelation. And remembering how He had, they remembered how He had used evil men to produce the Gospel in the first place. They prayed for another outpouring of grace in their own trials. God, you used Pontius Pilate. You used all those religious guys about the crucifixion, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it produced fruit. Lord, would you do it again through these evil men? Do it again, Lord. They didn't want judgment. They wanted mercy to be poured out that people would respond to Jesus Christ. 
Their prayer was for the healing of their enemies, not for hell. Doesn't that change campus preaching then? God, I pray not for hell. Yes, we got to talk about it. I pray for mercy. God, would you just pour out mercy on these people? So what do we do when we pray under pressure? How, do, how prioritized the spreading of the gospel? Do we sincerely pray that whether by life or by death that Jesus Christ would be magnified in my body? Biblical proclamation. Biblical proclamation must be empowered by the Spirit of God. And this requires prayer. And I'm going to say it loudly. Corporate prayer. It's nice that you go home and pray around your dinner tables or maybe in, in a time of pressure. It requires corporate prayer. So how about we just stop right there? i got like three pages left. It requires, brothers and sisters, it requires corporate prayer. Believing that God desires His glory to be shown and the fame of His Son to be known across this world. In your family, your backyard, your street, your neighborhood, this state, this nation, this world. So we're going to pray. Some of you like to hear your own voice a lot. Kind of cap it a little bit. Some of you who don't like to hear your voice at all and you're, you're scared to talk or pray, I want to encourage you to turn up your voice. Because there's nothing magical about the words that you say. I'll close this after a while. About 10 minutes or 7 minutes of prayer. That's all, just so you know, that's a long time. We can do it. So let's pray together, brothers and sisters.